Thanks for joining us for today's message. Our mission here at Plum Creek is to help you experience intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. Our hope is that what you hear today will impact and challenge you to love God and the people around you in a whole new way. We'd encourage you to check us out online at PlumCreekOnline.com to see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we might have for you or for your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, the two easiest ways are through our website, PlumCreekOnline.com slash give or via text. Just text any dollar amount to 720-606-5563. Thanks again for joining us today. You guys doing well? This is the last week of our Like a Child series. It's been a great series, a challenging series as we've kind of unpacked a little bit more about what it means to not overcomplicate uh, following Jesus because that's what we have a tendency to do. So today we're going to dive right into a topic that I think is uh, just so important for us to kind of go back to often. So I'm going to want you to take some notes today and uh, and, kind of stay with me. Before we head into that, I need to tell you a story. And before I tell you the story, I'm going to need your help, okay? Uh, Because I'm going to tell you a story that as of this moment, I've only told two other times uh, in each of our previous services. Otherwise, I've never told this story publicly because um, I need you to know I'm really deep inside of me a good person. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm okay, uh, not perfect, but I'm going to share with you a story that, um, and you'll see why here in just a minute. When I was in junior high, this, this church that we were part of in Ohio uh, planned a trip for the students to go uh, on a camping deal to Wyoming. And uh, my brother Matt and I signed up, and we had an opportunity to travel with this team to, to uh, go to Wyoming, and we were going to do all this fun stuff together and get to see a part of the country we had never been to before. And so the intention was to make it to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and to spend a couple of days camping there and do whitewater rafting and just all this cool stuff uh, out in the West. And so <clears throat> when we got there, we set up our campsite, um, lots of kids. There was like 40 or 50 of us and a bunch of leaders and stuff. And every morning what they would... Wait a second. When you're a junior hire and you go on a trip like this, that's a big deal. That's the furthest I'd ever been away from my mom and dad. And, you know, here I got, there were some cute girls on the trip. And I was trying my best to uh, kind of catch, catch some attention to those ladies. Okay? Had no idea what I was doing, but that's what I wanted to do. And so we had set up camp along the Snake River, and it was a really cool uh, environment. If you've never been there, you need to go sometime. It's absolutely beautiful. And what the leaders did was every morning they would encourage us to find a quiet spot, kind of break away from the rest of the crowd, and they had this time in our agenda and our schedule set aside. We would go, and we would uh, spend some time uh, reading. They had some materials printed up for us, and we would read, read some scripture and answer some questions and spend some time praying, kind of get our day ready, trying to obviously formulate some habits that we would carry back when we went home. And as any budding pastor would do, I found a very quiet little spot in another camp kind of area that nobody was at, a little picnic table by the river. And I got my little Bible out, my little notebook, and I was ready to go and got completely distracted. That's what junior high boys do, right? They got completely distracted. And so I was uh, watching these cute little furry chipmunks scurrying all over the campground. You guys have seen those in camp. They're just so cute, little striped, little tail. They're just so cute. I was in junior high. And uh, so I was in junior high. I just need you to know that. And uh, this thought went through my mind. And uh, you'd see those little guys every once in a while stop, and they would, like, stand up in the perfect pose, you know, 
drop back down and scurry around. And this thought that went through my junior high mind was, I wonder, if I pick up a rock, am I capable to have the accuracy to hit one of those chipmunks? Deeply spiritual devotional time, right? So I picked up a rock and about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away, one of those little guys did that little pause move and like jumped up on its back feet like that, like, like almost mocking me. Of course, in my little junior high mind, I thought there was no way possible. So I reared back and I threw this little rock right at that cute little furry rodent. And I hit him square between the eyes and he went. <laughs> and so like, I got to tell you that for like a second or two, I thought to myself, Whoo! Man, do you see that? Uncanny accuracy, you know? Un Who would have ever known that I had this ability inside of me? And about two seconds into that thought, I, I then started thinking, oh dear God, what if one of the girls on this trip just saw me? That is premeditated homicide on a chipmunk, you know? If that happened, I'm gonna live right here by this river in a van by myself for the rest of my life, right? And so I glanced over each shoulder and I ran over to the chipmunk and like whoop, threw him into the Snake River and he probably became lunch for a very large trout, right? Have you ever been guilty before? Have you ever felt ashamed before? Come on, come on, come on, just help me. You wonder why I tell this story. You see, it's my therapist told me it would stop the bad dreams, right? <laughs> and uh, more importantly, I can now confess this because Beth and I have been married almost 24 years in a couple of days, and we have four kids, and I know she loves me even if I killed a chipmunk. <laughs> We've all felt guilty before. We've all been in that kind of a circumstance and that kind of a situation, and you know, guilt is a real emotion, and uh, living guilty is a tough way to live. But truth be told, many of us do, and maybe it's because we're fearful that someone's going to find something out that we've done, or for some reason, there may be an inability inside of us to forgive ourselves. That's why this series to me seems so interesting, because the whole idea that we've been sharing is that we need to approach our relationship with God like a child, and yet that seems almost kind of counterintuitive, because let's just say you're at work and, and you see posted an opportunity for promotion, and you're trying to think through how to get that. You never, you never think, you know, I've got to work like a child. If I can focus like a toddler, I'm going to get that promotion, Right? Or let's just say you're in the locker room getting ready to go out and try and do your best as a team to win the league championship, whether on a field or the court. You never would hear your coach say, unless we have childlike execution today, teamwork and footwork and agility, we are not going to win this championship. You're probably never going to hear that said. Or if you're struggling in your marriage and you go to see your counselor and and uh, getting advice from your counselor, it's highly unlikely that your counselor is going to say, you know what, if you could just live unselfishly like a preschooler, you're going to make it. We don't hear those things. And yet, and yet what we've been looking at together is that the foundation of this series is something amazing that Jesus said in all of those areas, it would seem highly unlikely that we'd ever be challenged to somehow approach those circumstances and those situations 
like a child, but when Jesus talks to us about how we're to have our relationship with him, he says we should approach him like a child. So the passage of Scripture, if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, or use version or whatever it is, turn to Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at verse 16. We've read these verses uh, every week during this series. Uh, there are some parents that bring their children to Jesus, and as they're bringing their children to Jesus, they're wanting Jesus to lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples begin to kind of scurry these families along, uh, feeling that maybe what Jesus was doing was more important than these kids. And we learn something about the heart of our God uh, in these verses, in Luke chapter 18, verse 16, then Jesus called for the children, and he said to the disciples, let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Then in verse 17, that's been the foundation for this series, Jesus continues, and he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Bizarre. Amazing challenge that he extends to us, not a challenge that we probably would hear, unless, unless, of course, what you do, like I do, is you see kids playing and you're like, if we could just bottle up that energy, right? It's about the only time you might hear that. Or if you're like me, you watch the kids play and you think, gosh, how would you like to do this? You find one of those kids that's super active and you do everything they do for one day. How do you think you'd feel in the hospital later, <laughs> Right? But there's something that Jesus was saying about approaching our relationship with him with a simple understanding and a passion like a child. The message, paraphrase Bible, says that passage, Luke 18, 17, this way. These children are the kingdom's pride and joy. Then he says, mark this. Unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. So we've been unpacking the different attributes of God and asking God to restore and renew a childlike faith in our lives. And today, as we approach this next topic, we have to have a childlike understanding. But not just children need to understand this. You and I need to understand this. And our main thought, if you have your journey guides, I want you to pull them out. And um, we've left the main thought blank. And we're going to start doing that for a while because I want you to write them in. I want you to kind of get this in your heart. The main thought this week is this, my God forgives me. That's how a kid would say it. My God forgives me. Now let me kind of illustrate this just a little bit um, because when you're a kid, you understand this well and something happens as we get mature because we don't mature well sometimes in our understanding of this. When our kids were young, I can remember Beth and I um, having a moment with each of them and uh, they would get a situation. It's only happened four times, one for each of them where they got in trouble, right? No, I'm just kidding. And so they get in trouble, and of course, there's consequences. There's going to be a punishment, and might be a spanking or a timeout or some kind of a, a losing a privilege or whatever it is. And I can remember talking to the kids about these situations and uh, talking to them about what they had done was wrong. Yeah, Dad, I know it was wrong, and, and you're going to be punished. You deserve a punishment. Yeah, because we want you to remember not to do this anymore. Oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. And so here's the punishment. You just see those eyes like kind of like, oh, jeesh, you know, here we go. And uh, I remember the first time with each of our kids when we would do this. And just say, oh, hey, uh, before we go any further, have you ever heard of grace? They're like, no. We see, grace is unmerited favor, and I know that doesn't make any sense to you, so I'm going to try and help explain this. Now, if you're a parent, take good notes right now. This is powerful. So you say to your kids, this is something that God has given to us, and I really want you to understand it because it's incredible. And so you know what you did was wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know there's consequences. yeah. And so you know that this is what's coming. Yeah. Well, guess what? Mom and I have decided that there will be no punishment today. 
And you're like, that right there, what you just felt? That's grace. That's good, huh? And they're like, I love grace, right? And then you find out not too much longer, usually it's like the next hour or later that day, get in trouble and they're going to have to do something now and the consequences, and they're like, quick question, you know, can I get a little more of that grace over here, Dad, right? There's something about kids that totally get it. They understand it. They like it. They love it. They want more of it, right? And so when they get in trouble, there's just this excitement of understanding what grace looks like and how it does really change us and how it's something that we need to be fired up about. And then we get older and we mature and we overcomplicate it. And all of a sudden, we're not acting like a little kid excited about God's forgiveness and grace anymore because it's just something that's here and not here. And if it's not here, it doesn't change our lives. And so this is novel. This is groundbreaking news. When Jesus says, listen, come to me like a child. Because when we understand it, we're like, hey, Dad, dude, the grace thing, I need a little more of that. Like, thank you so much for what you've done so that I can continue to be in the right place, in a right standing, unashamed, and fully embraced by my God, regardless of what I've done. See, there's something about this this grace that we have to understand. We should be as passionate as a child about this. It should change the way we live. In fact, I want, I want today this main thought to be cemented so much into our hearts that I think it would be important and appropriate for us to say it together. So I'm gonna count to three and I want you to say, my God forgives me. Okay, ready? One, two, three. My God forgives me. Not Okay. More awake than the early service. Uh, maybe a little more volume than the Saturday service. But that was not childlike. You are not excited about this. And this is a game changer, guys, so we're going to do it again. And let's try and, you know, help the kids hear this. Can we do that? They would, they would let us know if they were talking about it today. So we're going to do it again. And with a little more youthful enthusiasm, let's talk about the greatest good news you've ever heard in your life. And that's that your God forgives you. Ready? One, two, three. My God oh, that was awesome. That's the best. This, this is the one we're putting on the website. That one right there. That was awesome. This is incredible. Now we just have to live like we know it, and we have to live like we believe it. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we understand a little bit better how this works. You might want to write that verse down, 1 John Chapter 1, verse 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. You see, it's just like our kids would understand. They would agree with Beth and I when we were talking to them. We need to agree with God. Have we blown it? Yeah, I blew it. Do you deserve punishment? Yeah, I deserve punishment. Do you need some forgiveness? Oh, yeah. And grace? Oh, yeah. You see, there's a process. There's a process. And when we walk into our relationship with God, 1 John 1, 9 says we need to confess our sins to him. And then it triggers this process of God at work in us. And the Bible says this, God forgives us. That's beautiful. My God forgives me. He is faithful. 
In the next words, he is just. And I need to stop for a second there because that is a very important word for you to hear. He is just. This is not cheap grace. This grace comes with a price tag. The plan came with a price. The price was that our Heavenly Father would send His Son to come and die on that cross. That's a big deal. He is a just God, so there's an exchange that takes place. And when He does that, He cleanses us from all wickedness. You see, as a pastor, I've discovered that many people are dying slowly in a secret tomb of shame. It's debilitating. It takes us out at the needs. It causes us to feel unworthy. We can't seem to let the past go. And what God wants to say to you and me today is this. Like a child. Like a child. Don't overcomplicate this. Like a child. Understand. My God forgives me. So I want to lay a foundation today of exactly how God does this. How does God forgive and what exactly this means? So again, take your journey guides out, and I want you to write a few things down. As a matter of fact, these things are so important that I want you to save this one and put it somewhere really important that you'll be reminded um, to, to take a look at this, to be reminded almost, as a matter of fact, underwear drawer. Because you better be using that drawer every day, right? <laughs> So you put this in there and you be reminded of what we're talking about today because we all need to be reminded on a regular basis that my God forgives me. So how does God forgive? How does God forgive? First thing I want you to write down is this. God removes our sin. What's that word? Completely. Completely. As a matter of fact, Psalm 103.12 says this. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Do you have any... Uh, Geography buffs? How far is that? Actually, we have a great reminder of that here in Colorado, don't we? Because you can see the mountains on the west, and you can see nothing but Kansas and beyond on the east. As far as those are and further, God separates and removes our sins from us. It's not even that he stops looking at it. It's that he chooses it's not necessarily even that he chooses not to deal with it. The Bible says that God completely detaches our sin from us, and he separates it from our lives, and that is incredible. That is incredible. This week, as I was reading in my devotional time, I came across a passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 2, and I want to read it to you because it, it kind of describes the way that this takes place. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, it says this, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. Look at verse 14 and before we head into it, you need to understand that the apostle Paul was using legal terms here. He's describing a legal transaction that has taken place and is completely done. In verse 14, again, this is about that grace that is not cheap, right? Verse 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. It's not cheap grace. But he's describing this legal transaction that takes place so that whatever was a charge against you is completely wiped away 
and is no longer there. So I was trying to think about how I could illustrate that, and I was reminded of this story that I want to share with you. When I was a youth pastor years and years ago uh, at a church, I had a young guy in my youth group, and his name was Josh. And Josh was an incredible young man. I met him just as he was coming out of his junior high years and heading into the senior high ministry that we were leading in. And Josh was born with congenital heart problems. He had leaky valves and all kinds of heart issues. And he had had multiple doctor's appointments and tests almost every single month and multiple surgeries over the course of his young life. He, he, just was, he was at the doctor having a surgery or recovering from a surgery or taking intense medications his entire life. Very debilitating. And uh, he couldn't do a lot of the things the other kids could do because of his heart condition. And I remember the day that his mom, her name was Betty, his his dad's name was John, they came to church, or Jim, came to church and they said, "Uh, Doug, we need you to pray because Josh's heart has, has it's, it's run its course and the only option now is for Josh to get a heart transplant. And I had never been through anything like that with a student before. It was very intense. And so our leaders and our student ministry and a lot of the others at the church began to pray for the halls as they were processing through this whole thing. And a couple of weeks later, I remember Betty coming back to church and tears in her eyes, overwhelmed like only a mom could be, like at wit's end. And she said, now, guys, I need to pray with you for more of a miracle than I ever would have dreamed possible. You see, we just got a phone call from our insurance company and because Josh has fought this for so long, he was 16 at the time, we are so close to reaching our million-dollar maximum payout in our insurance, and we still have to have heart transplant, and we still have to have medications for the rest of his life. And she was overwhelmed, and she just said, would you please, would you please pray? Well, in that kind of situation, you know, you're like, of course, but you don't even know what to pray, do you? Just pray somehow, God, you got to do something. Like, I don't even know what that means, but you got to do something. And a couple of weeks later, Betty comes walking into church. As a matter of fact, she was floating into church. Like those moments where your feet don't hit the ground, you're so excited. She came in and she said, you guys, thank you for praying. You're not going to believe what just happened this week. We were like, what? What's going on? We were like, is Josh okay? What's happening? She said, our insurance company got sold to another insurance company, and they reset Josh to zero. What? We were like, I didn't even know that was a possibility. If I would have known that was a possibility, that's what we'd have been praying for. It was such a miracle. It was like the slate was wiped clean. All of the expenses, all of the payouts, all of the things that he had been through completely off the books. Miracle. You see, that's what we're talking about here. This is the legal transaction that we're talking about. Can you imagine how good that felt for the Hall family to have reset to zero? clean slate. That is exactly what this Colossians passage is talking about. No record. It's not even that God no longer holds our sins against us. Rather, he completely separates our sin from us. It's no longer attached or associated with us. That, guys, is good news. And I don't know how we forget it, but we get old and we grow up and we forget how great grace really is. We forget how awesome God's forgiveness really is. And so today, what we want to do is recapture a childlike heart that's just once again overwhelmed with gratitude, no longer living in any kind of shame, 
And the only reason we would look back at our past is for one reason, to see the cross. That's it. To know that we have, but here's the deal. The enemy of your soul doesn't want you to do that. Because the enemy of the soul wants you to live in the tomb of shame that kills you one day at a time. Preventing you from having the relationship with God that he intends for you to have. And here's what happens. Shame usually follows a pattern. A cycle. We recriminate ourselves with lies and those lies claim life after life after life. And here's how it goes. Something happens. Either you do something or someone does something to you and you experience an intensely painful event. And then we believe the lie that our pain and our failure is who we are. Not just something that we've done or had done to us, but slowly we begin to experience the emotion and the thoughts of living with shame. And then those feelings of shame begin to trap us into thinking that we could never recover. And then this cycle hits the ultimate low when we get to a place that we don't even feel like we deserve to recover. Some of you are in this place right now. Maybe it's been quite some time. Maybe some of you, this is new feelings of emotion that you're having right now, and you're feeling like you may never recover. You're feeling like you'll never get over your failures, your past. And you've got to hear me here. There is a way out of this cycle. It will look different for each of us, but it's possible for each of us. And by the grace of God, no matter how uniquely, no matter how irreversibly crippling your shame may feel, there is hope. And do you know why there's hope? My God forgives me. My God forgives me. And you need to be sure of that. My God forgives me. How does he forgive? God removes our sin completely, but let's take it to the next level. Number two, we can learn from God's example. God forgets our sin immediately. He forgets our sin immediately. In Isaiah 43, 25, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Wow. Oftentimes I've wondered what it must be like to be our Heavenly Father watching His kids whom He's paid an incredible price to experience what we're talking about today to with a childlike understanding fully embrace forgiveness and grace and mercy, to watch us walk around with our heads down, to watch us walk around with that slow death that takes place in the tomb of shame. And today dad's saying, stop. Don't live that way. His grace is complete. It's not cheap, but it's paid for. Nothing you can do, nothing you did to deserve it, but it's there for us. And with a very simple heart, we have to say and understand, my God forgives me. So how, how do we get there? How do we understand that? 
How do we understand that my God forgets our sin immediately and removes our sin completely? You see, the all-knowing creator of the world makes a willful decision to limit his memory as it relates to our sin. That blows my mind. So I was trying to think about how to make that come alive to you today, so I thought it might be good if I introduced some of those of you that are younger to this little device that is in front of me right here. Uh, This, students, this, it's the precursor to the computer. I know. Looks pretty primitive, doesn't it? I want to let you in a little secret. When Doug went to college, there was no computer in my dorm room, let alone in my backpack or in my pocket in a phone case. When we typed a paper, not quite this old, but compared to what we have today, it felt like it. So let me tell you how we used to have to type papers. We would insert a paper in this typewriter after we had previously handwritten our entire paper. After we had handwritten our entire paper, we checked it for spelling, we checked it for grammar, and once we felt like it was at the place that it could be transposed from handwriting to typewriting, we would sit in front of a device like this, a little more modern, plugged into a wall instead of otherwise, and we would begin to type our paper one little letter and punctuation at a time. And here's what would happen. It's crazy. You would get to a place, you're like, oh, no, a period, not a comma. And you know what you have to do? You don't just backspace because there was no backspace. You pull the paper out of the typewriter. I know, crazy, right? And you take it over to the other desk and you get a bottle of stuff called whiteout. This is crazy, I know, listen to me. You shake it to me, this is paint. You take paint and you open this. I know, ready? Check this out. You're not gonna believe it. A paintbrush! You literally would take white paint and paint it on your paper to cover up the punctuation or the misspelled word because that's the only way to fix it. And then, if you were smart, You waited long enough for it to dry. And you even would do this. You you will blow on it to kind of expedite the process. Now check this out. This is where it gets crazy, as if it's not crazy enough already. You would have to reinsert the same paper exactly the same way into the typewriter. Because you know what would happen if you didn't? If you had misspelled a word and painted over it after it had dried, assuming you let it dry long enough, put it back in there. If you hit the key and it wasn't lined up right, you know what you had to do? Pull it back out and go back to the paint and start all over again. And so you can imagine how great our papers looked when we turned them in. It's like little bumpy hills all over our paper of dry paint. And the teacher was like, oh, made a mistake there, didn't they? (laughs) Like, there was no secret. It was like blemishes all over the place. Why do I tell you this story? Because that seems rude, out of date, and unbelievable that anyone would use technology like this, right? Just nod your head, right? That's ridiculous. But that's how we live our lives. You see, we keep seeing the ramifications of our mistakes on our paper instead of understanding that there's a... Can you imagine... Taryn, can you imagine typing a paper like that? Like, you might be a great typer, 
But it's tough to get a whole page without a mistake. You know, it's tough to get a whole page of life without a mistake too. And the good news is that our Heavenly Father's technology blows away a typewriter. You see, the backspace, the fixed spelling, the punctuation right, and once you send it off to grandma, that's what my kids do, she can edit it again and send it back. And when it's all pretty imperfect, you just hit print. And all the mistakes that you might have made, they're not even there. That's the way our God works. There's no history of it. Completely wiped clean, gone. God deletes, he erases the history because my God forgives me. So here's what we need to do. Instead of living a slow death in the tomb of shame, instead of not understanding God's grace and forgiveness today, we need to fully embrace this with a whole new understanding, but a simple understanding. Just like a kid would. My God forgives me. So our ushers are going to come and help us with our communion today and Um, We practice open communion at Plum Creek, which means this. uh, It's not about church membership. It's about your personal relationship with the Lord. And so um, for for each of us that have a relationship with God and he's your Lord and Savior, take the communion elements as they pass. And and as they're distributing those, I want you to stay with me for a second because I want to read to you one of my favorite psalms. Again, came across this psalm this week in my uh, personal time of reading, and it's uh, Psalm chapter 51. And Psalm, Psalm 51 is actually a response. It's a, it's a letter written, uh, a psalm written by David after the experience that he went through in 2 Samuel chapter 11 when he uh, committed a sin, and it was a, it was a bedoozy, it was a bad one. Uh, he committed adultery with a, with a lady named Bathsheba. He saw her uh, taking a bath, and he wanted to sleep with her, and so he invited her to come to his palace, and even though she was married, uh, he did that, and then uh, she became pregnant, and to cover up his sin and to cover up what he had done, he sent her husband to the front lines of the battle and uh, had him purposefully killed, and so he committed adultery and murder, and he was like cracking out the top 10 pretty quick. And after he gets to the place in his life where he realizes what he has done. There is this Psalm 51 that records the beautiful repentance of King David after he has done this. And I want you to listen to the words. And you might want to write Psalm 51 down on your notes because I won't have opportunity to read it all, but you really should go back and read Psalm 51 sometime this week to help what we're talking about today be cemented in your mind and more importantly give you that childlike enthusiasm for all that God does. Psalm 51 verse 1 David is writing, again, remember his circumstances. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. Look at verse three. This is for some of us today in the same spot. For I recognize my rebellion, and here it is, it haunts me day and night. If you jump down to verse seven, he continues and he says, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Look at verse eight. This is for someone else. 
You've lost your joy and it needs to be recaptured. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Then in verse 10, David writes this beautiful, beautiful prayer that many of you have heard before. It's childlike enthusiasm for God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. In verse 10, David says, create in me, there it is, a clean heart. Take it all away. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then 12, look at this again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. You see, he didn't try and pretend that he was innocent. He was honest. But he also made a conscious decision to no longer let the tomb of guilt be one that would overwhelm his soul. That no longer would guilt rob him of the joy of a life that had been redeemed and restored. What he want is what Stephen challenged each of us earlier to be able to leave this room with today and that is a declarative statement that says, it is well with my soul. He knew he couldn't change his past just like us but he had hope and he believed and he trusted that he could change the future because my God forgives me. When we accept that the past is unchangeable, we must embrace that God can change our future. While we may always have some memory of what happened, we are able to overcome those memories believing that we are not what happened. You see, our pasts do not define us. Oh, but God's forgiveness defines us. His grace defines us. And we're freed from our past. The only reason we look back, do you know why? Do you know why we look back? To remember. And the only thing you need to remember is this. Listen. The cross. The rest of it doesn't matter. Body's broken. His blood was shed. That's not cheap grace, guys. And because that price was paid, we need to recapture youthful enthusiasm for the incredible work of our God. No longer in the tomb of shame, but released with hope for our future that looks so, so different. And when we do this well, all of a sudden there's a change. There's a change of our heart's affection you get that. Because you can't, you can't respond in any other way except for being appreciative of everything that God has done. And when our heart is changed and we have affection for our God, for what he's done, it also changes our life's direction. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Jesus, you were really on to something that day when you challenged us with your words that we would, that we would approach you like a child. We ask you today to forgive us first because we've overcomplicated this. 
we struggle with our past because we haven't fully grasped the reality of your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, today we're reminded as we take communion together that it's not cheap grace. That you paid a price and today we're grateful. Will you help us reclaim that? Fresh start, God. We are not defined by our mistakes. We're defined by our God. And you're removing those things from us as far as the east is from the west. And so today, Lord, will you give us a fresh start once again? That we would only look back for one reason, and that's to see the cross. But that today you would begin the process again of creating in me and in us a clean heart, O oh God. Help us to not live in shame. Friends, today, maybe there's someone here that hasn't made a decision to accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And uh, maybe you're here today and that's you and you know you've been trying to deal with your past on your own. And uh, we do that in lots of ways. Uh, But today, you may understand for the first time that you need to accept God and understand that what he did for you all those years ago on that cross was for this moment so that you could also have a fresh start. And if that's you, I know that the journey is tough and and, uh, you may be wanting to make this decision today to say yes to what he's done for you. And if that's you, just simply pray this, God, I needed this today. I'm tired of fighting this on my own and I can't make the past go away. It continues to haunt me and I have shame sometimes when I think about it. I ask you for your forgiveness today. I know that what you did on that cross, you did for me. And I ask you to come and to be the Lord of my life to help me to understand what it looks like to live with an entirely different future in store uh, because my past will no longer haunt me. Create in me a pure heart, O Lord. And Lord, for all of us today, we need to be reminded of a childlike spirit that just takes you at your word. We know your body was broken and your blood was shed, so it it came at a cost. But Lord, we should see the value of that and live differently. Remind us, God, of what we've talked about today on a regular basis. My God forgives me. Will you take the bread? And the cup. As we finish this up today, if you're going to let God do his thing, what happens is, you see, God takes the shame of our past failures and somehow he redirects those failures and the outcomes of that towards your future success. And the reason he does that is because we learn in the toughest times of life, don't we? Most importantly, we learn a lot about him. So lean into this, guys, with youthful enthusiasm. One more time. My God forgives me. Ready? One, two, three. My God forgives me. Will you stand to your feet? If you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today, congratulations. We are so excited for you, and we'd love to equip you with some resources, some next steps, and a complimentary gift. Just text the word FAITH 
to 40650. And if today you just need to talk to someone or would like to have someone pray with you, you can call our church office at 303-663-1714 and one of our pastors would be happy to spend some time with you. From everyone here at Plum Creek, have a great day.